Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the, I guess that's why they call it the Elton John podcast podcast. We're here to celebrate Elton and Bernie's Empty Sky, which was released a little over 50 years ago on the 6th of June 1969. This is what this podcast exists to do. I've watched the Rocketman movie, I heard the soundtrack and the new song, I've read the newsprint, acres of it, the incessant online debate about facts versus fantasy, all of that. I was going to do an episode about it. I even took notes during the film itself. Um, But in the end, I came to the conclusion that's not really why people come to the podcast. Here at the podcast, I'm trying to get Elton to be given his due for him to be looked at and remembered as an important musician. So... As a result, I cover the musical side of things, the story of Elton fighting his way out from the sidelines, from backing R&B musicians, towards becoming an in-demand session man. And I also cover the growth of Elton and Bernie as songwriters, going through the Tin Pan Alley ringer and through the uh, psychedelic Hall of Mirrors on the way to finding their own voice. The parallel story, the story of Elton, the shy, unloved child, desperate for attention and validation, filling the voids um, with whatever he found. It obviously underlies this story of musical growth, but it didn't start pushing past the music until about the Don't Shoot Me era. That's when the excesses and the costumes and the celebrity lifestyle started to become a little bit more central. And that is a big part of who Elton is, because he's let that happen. He's got to all of those bridges in his career, and he's crossed over each time, becoming bigger, a bit more daft, a bit more extreme. There have been times, probably, when he would have faded away if he hadn't have been such a big character. And I suppose that's why it's this side of Elton that his management are pushing. I understand it, but it doesn't mean I have to like it. It's it's like they make the music just be the setting for the image and not vice versa. It's been a very focused offer from Rocket over the last few years. It's the same couple of dozen mega hits over and over in concert, in the movie, and on the best of, all accompanied by images of Elton, the stadium filler, Elton, the Donald Duck, singing your song, Elton doing Crocodile Rock with the Muppets, all of that fluff, all of that glitter. It's Elton John Week, 1975, crystallised. Elton's had his 3D avatar done, by the way, according to Wired magazine, And you can expect them to be touring Elton in his post-biological form long after you and I have shuffled off this mortal coil. A scary thought. The record label are trying to create a simple story. Something to, to be shot far into the distant future. They want Elton to be at the centre of any history that gets told of the first hundred years or so of popular recorded music alongside Dylan, alongside the Beatles. They're placing him alongside Warhol and Bowie as someone that represents his age. I'm not against that. 
And I think it's possible. I think he deserves it. And I understand that to make a successful movie and a stage musical, for that matter, you need to keep the narrative simple. You need goodies. You need baddies. That's fine. Well, it's not really fine. Not if you're Stephen James, for example, but it's it's understandable. Although three baddies does seem a bit much. And then not mentioning any musicians or people that actually helped him. Anyway, let's hope that we get a little bit more nuance in the autobiography in October. That's not the problem for me, though. My problem is that in the process, they're underselling the musical side of Elton, both in the movie and on stage as well. It's like the depth of his music has had to be squashed to make the story stick. I'm fine with the songs being used in an impressionistic manner in the film. Even something like, I guess that's why they called it the blues, being sung in Elton's audition with Dick, whatever that's about. My problem is distilled in the Troubadour scene, of course. Of all the songs they could have chosen to represent that moment, the moment when the musical elite turned, rejoiced, recognised Elton, embraced him as a multi-directional talent of the highest order. At that moment, they picked Crocodile Rock. Crocodile Rock, the song that Caleb and Roger Pope refused to play. They'd rejoin, they said, as long as they didn't have to play it. That's how succinctly Crocodile Rock summed up their underlying problem with what Elton had been doing since they'd worked with him in 1970. It was style over substance. This is the song that Elton himself has joked about, saying he didn't want to be playing it in Vegas in his 40s. Well, the joke's on you now, Elton. You're now playing it at what was supposed to be the most artistically vital series of shows of your entire career. And you're going to be doing that until the end of time. I'm thinking of the music scholar of 2170. Someone who's researching that night, a hundred years before, when Elton John took on the Troubadour. Are they going to find the 1711 70 album to see what the music actually sounded like? Or are they just going to take on the condensed movie version? I hope the former. I really do. But the way that the culture is being increasingly chewed over and pre-digested, I really do wonder. Rant over. It's time to return to the present or to the past. Uh, 50 years ago, uh, the 50-year anniversary of Empty Sky passed by without ceremony, save for an article on the ElmanJohn.com website by Mr. John Higgins. Excellent as that article is, and it's got a fresh interview with Caleb, no less, in it. It's no deluxe special edition. You might say, well... Um, this guy isn't exactly Sergeant Peppers. Why would you think it would deserve that kind of treatment? And I can see this argument for sure. They don't have a choice with the uh, second album, with the Elton John album. They need something substantial for that next year. They'll have some questions to answer, not just from me for that. But still, look at some of the artists who've been given us five and six CD uh, collections over the last few years. America. Vandegraaff Generator, Jethro Tull, Love, The Moody Blues, they all turned 50s. And then you've got Gomez turning 20, Hootie and the Blowfish at 25. 
And I know this isn't Elton's landmark album. It is a bit of an oddity in the catalogue, but by ignoring it like this, Rocket are just setting the tone for another phase of ad hoc style releasing, just like the previous deluxe editions, like the 5.1 releases. This was also a prime opportunity to get some of the unreleased 1968-1969 era Elton out there. Maybe it's not gone forever, but they've missed the big 50-year anniversary, to be fair, so if I, <laughs> I'm a week behind. Um, anyway, instead of just moaning about it, I've tried to be proactive, and I've put together a, a six-CD collection of what I'd love to see from an Empty Sky Deluxe Edition, based on what is known to exist out there. I'm going to start going through it today, and in the process, I'll try to tell the story of the album. A sensible place to start is September 1968. At that stage, Elton's written a few promising tracks, including Skyline Pigeon, but he's still very much in the grip of the evil Dick James, that foul-mouthed cockney that we all know from the movie. He's still there forcing Elton and Bernie to write hunks of garbage for the likes of Engelbert Humperdinck. Anyway, sorry. There's, there's a tape that was sold a few years back with three uncirculated songs dated the 18th of September. These songs show Elton and Bernie missing the mark entirely. They're aiming halfway between writing commercial music and writing something that's meaningful to them. And we can get a taste of a couple of these songs from samples that have been circulated and one of them is Smokestack Children, or at least a butchered sample of the beginning of the verse of that song, followed by a bit of the chorus. Down fire escapes, they must escape to clear skies. You can almost hear the dream dying. It's not a bad tune, but it's not good, and it's difficult to imagine who would cover it. We were offered a glimpse of another one of the songs from this tape, uh, the excellently titled The Girl on Angel Pavement, when it turned up in the background of a BBC documentary a few years back. Bernie Taupin and Elton John's early attempts at songwriting were considered unsuitable for Liberty Records, but caught the attention of music business impresario Dick James, who was impressed enough to sign the pair to a music publishing contract. The songs that we were originally told to write when we were signed to Dick James Music were for people like Tom Jones and Lulu and, and Cilla Black and people like the Hollies. And, and they already had a very successful team there called Roger Cook and Roger Greenaway. And, 
we just didn't, no one really covered those songs at all. There was a guy called Steve Brown who worked for Dick James and kind of aligned himself with us and said, why don't you guys go and just write what you want, you know? But when we came back with these songs, there was nobody to record them. You know, I mean, we weren't going to get them covered by anybody. And then the idea was brought up that, hey, you got a voice, why don't you sing them? And thus Elton John was born. Right, sorry, I'm not meant to just be here playing the BBC documentary. I let Elton talk so that you could hear the music underneath him. But I left it running for that very nice summary from Bernie of what happened after Steve Brown joined exactly at this point in September 1968. Here's Elton telling the same story from an interview in late 1970. It was a very sort of frustrating period. And then a guy called Steve Brown came along who's on the back of the Elton John album cover. And he said, well, listen, you know, the, the stuff's rubbish. And, of course, we sulked even more then when he told us it was rubbish because we knew it was and <laughs> we didn't like to admit it. And he said, just do what you want to do, just write and write exactly how you want to do it. You've got nothing to lose. So we said, all right. Um, from that sort of day on, we just have written exactly how we wanted to. We've been asked to write special songs for special people and we haven't done it because it wouldn't have turned out right. We just write and exactly how we feel it and... And it sort of began to work straight away from then on. Steve had previously been with EMI as a plugger and then in A&R. His big claim to fame was turning busker Don Partridge into the most unlikely pop star, taking his song Rosie to number four in February 1968. He was the man who put the earlier Zippo era recordings firmly on the shelf finding them inauthentic. He was the man who got Dick James off their backs about the commercial music, and he was the man who told them to have another go at writing what I'd suppose we'd call alternative music these days, this time to really try and do it from the heart. He was a proper hippie, shaggy hair, deep into the counterculture. Elton and Steve became great friends, sharing musical discoveries, the likes of Leonard Cohen, Bob Dylan, the Rolling Stones, the band, and David Ackles. These were the basic ingredients that went into the pot, so let's have a listen to some of them. Uh, I'm talking over Caledonia Mission from the band's debut album from April 1968, music from Big Pink. There's definitely something of the instrumental passages of All Across the Havens in there. Here's another song from the same album, Long Black Veil. Yeah. 
The Scaffold's got several strands of this song's DNA, not just musically, with the slightly overdriven electric piano sound, but also lyrically. Bernie's black lace is similar to this black veil, and there's a line that explicitly states the scaffold is high. And in fact, the topic of both the songs is very similar, although Bernie's extremely oblique in his rendering, it has to be said. How about something from David Ackles? Here's a moment in his song Down River from his debut album. Hey, why didn't you write, Rosie? I stayed awake most every night Counting my time, babe Oh no, I ain't mad, Rosie I know you had to mind your dad But just a line, babe Oh sure, I remember Ben It's not just the conversational style of this song, but it's that key change, the way the organ gets louder and the way the thoughts seem to turn on the word remember. This, for me, is Lady What's Tomorrow in Blueprint, and it's for that reason I can't see how Bernie and Elton could have written it any earlier than September 1968, which is when this album was released. Dylan can be heard all over the album. One fairly indirect link is between Gulliver and the Ballad of a Thin Man from Highway 61 Revisited, which was released in 1965. You walk into the room pencil in your hand You see somebody naked in you You say, who is that man? You try so hard but you don't understand Just what you will say when you get home Because something is happening here but you don't know what it is Do you Mr. Jones It's not overwhelming, but they're in the same key and there's a similarity tonally there. The, the other influence that's often noted is Sympathy for the Devil, the lead track on the Rolling Stones album Beggar's Banquet, which came out in December 68. And there's something of that for sure in the title track of the album which was written just a couple of weeks later. They share a loose feel, they grow at about the same pace, and of course, the conga drums. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. I've been around for a long, long year. Stole many a man's soul of faith. I was around when Jesus Christ at his moment of doubt and pain 
As we'll hear later, there's another Rolling Stones song which is probably even more directly referenced in Empty Sky. Here's an excerpt of my interview with David Larkham, the sleeve designer for Empty Sky, from episode 24 of this podcast. You and Bernie and particularly Steve and Elton, you spent a lot of time around Steve's house, didn't you? We did, yes. You, you were a bit of a gang. I mean, that sounds uh, like yes. you're going around roughing up old ladies, it, but I'm sure it, you were Indeed. Well, for Elton, Bernie and myself, we were like the lost kids from Peter Pan and uh, Steve Brown and his wife would invite us down to their house in the country yeah. at weekends, you know? And you'd get a proper meal. Not every weekend. Uh, yeah, we'd get a proper meal and we'd do things like uh, go out for country walks, play football, play tennis. Inevitably, yes. Elton would win. Uh, we'd <laughs> go to the pub. We'd go to uh, fish and chips. Yeah. Go to the cinema together, that kind of thing. And so, listen to records oh, and, as well? And Yes, exactly. Uh, we'd, on the Friday, uh, go to Musicland in Soho, where uh, we could pick up U.S. imports. Mm. And um, those were treasured to take down uh, new records to listen to over a weekend at um, Steve and Jill's house. Oh, it sounds like fantastic memories. It must it be. Was, yeah. I, I, I imagine listening to things like that David Ackles album for the first time must have been an exactly, incredible yes. moment. And, and uh, Leonard Cohen's first album. And here's a song from that album released in December 1967. This is Sisters of Mercy. All the sisters of mercy, they are not departed or gone. They were waiting. When I thought that I just can't go on And they brought me their comfort And later they brought me this song Oh, I hope you run into them You who've been traveling so long Honesty in his voice, the romantic melodies slightly skewed and then given a homely kind of treatment in the studio. This, more than anything, is what I feel that Steve was trying to get at in the music that he produced and recorded for Elton. Steve wasn't the only member of staff showing an enthusiasm for Elton's new music. He'd joined Lionel Conway at DJM and he'd also been an advocate for Elton. In 68, but it was Steve's voice that was heard by Dick and Stephen James, and it put Elton back in the game as a recording artist. They essentially invented the DJM imprint for Elton, and they made Steve the label manager. 
didn't quite manage it in time for the release of Lady Samantha in January 69. That still came out on Philips. But they'd done it well in advance of the release of Empty Sky in June, um, which was actually the third album on DJM after a couple of easy listening releases. Here's David Larkham again talking about how he got involved. Steve Brown and I grew up as uh, teenagers together. Then I moved to Liverpool for a while, then was back in London. So I knew Steve and his family. Um, I think his sister was one of my first girlfriends, uh, that kind of thing. Okay. So we knew of each other and we were pals, basically. Oh, uh, lovely. Okay. When he needed, he phoned me uh, i used to work for the evening standard uh graphic designer he phoned me and he said he had a couple of uh, unknown songwriters and he needed some photographs so that was the beginning of all of that we knew what we wanted to do with a sort of sky in the background yes we were all a bit naive then that was the album itself You've got a lot for Empty Sky. You've got a gatefold, sleeve, textured, cover all the lyrics. Yeah, well, uh, Steve had a lot of influence saying, look, if we're going to treat this person with the deference that is due to his talent, then uh, we should go big time and not, uh, not make anything look cheap, you know. It was Steve who put the quotes from the radio DJs on the sleeve, a typical plugger thing to do. But Steve's links would give Elton much-needed exposure through the BBC radio sessions. And the first of those came almost straight away, October the 28th, 1968. It was recorded at the Aeolian Hall. This one doesn't survive, as far as I'm aware, but never say never. They're documented as having played all across the Havens, Lady Samantha and Skyline Pigeon. Interestingly, there was no Roger Pope on drums alongside Caleb. For this first session, Malcolm Tomlinson is credited on drums. He played in the short-lived psych band The Penny Peeps, best known nowadays for their raucous and faintly hilarious B-side, Model Village. The bassist was Boots Slade, a session bassist. The songs were aired five days later on the Stuart Henry show. The notes from the audition panel relating to this session have been found. Not very nice. They say, witheringly, male vocal in the 1968 feeling, thin, piercing voice with no emotional appeal, dreary songs, one key singer, pretentious material. Still, they did have him back, so that panel of old suits was starting to have a bit of a less of a say, at least. Back at Dick James Studios, some of the first tracks being recorded were Lady Samantha and All Across the Havens in December of 68, ready for release on Philips on the 17th of January, a full 10 months on from Elton's debut single. 
it's time for me to direct you to take a look at the link in the episode description, which has got the fantasy track listing that I've compiled for my fantasy deluxe edition. Lady Samantha could be found on CD1 track 10 in the familiar stereo mix, which was first issued on the Rare Masters release and then on the 1995 CD reissue of Empty Sky. Although it'd be nice if someone could remix it again without the weird dropout to mono towards the end. The original mono mix is on CD2, track 10. Lady Samantha, to me, is the sound of an artist clambering out of the 60s. Here's Elton talking to Andy Peebles in 1980 for the BBC about the recording of the song. Really, the first person to really motivate us at Dick James was a guy called Lionel Conway and then Steve Brown when he joined. I never had any aspirations at that point to become a vocalist at all. Right. And I got pushed into making a record of Lady Savantha, which I hated, but Steve Brown liked, and it came out and it got a reasonable amount of airplay. I always remember being absolutely horrified with the fact that the Wurlitzer piano that we hired for the session had a note out of tune and I couldn't play one of the notes that was essential and... Uh, I hated it. I was very bigoted in those days, and Steve Brown was a very wise man, and said, go away and listen to it for two or three days and see what you think. And after two or three days, I said, okay, release it. You know, can't do him any harm. When the shrill winds are screaming, and the evening is still, Lady Samantha glides over the hills in a long satin dress. That she wears every day Her home is the hillside Her bed is the grave Lady Samantha glides like a tiger Over the hills with no one beside her No one comes near They all live in fear Lady Samantha, she shall The mono mix there from my scratchy 45. I love the rumble of bad air that this song seems to rise up through to greet us. You can almost picture that introduction. It sounds a lot like the landscape that Bernie's describing. Elton's voice and Roger's drumming are punctuating everything and the howls of Caleb's guitar hanging over the scene like a mournful Jimi Hendrix. It's a promising verse, it's got a folky sensibility and an elegant, even shape. The chorus gets a little bit more chuggy, sometimes the lyrics are a bit compressed and they get lost, particularly at the end, with the clumsy sounding, she sheds only tears. As a whole, I love the fact that Elton released this song, why he would have been so bigoted and initially against it is beyond me. As far as a character study goes, it's a step up from what Bernie'd been doing up to that point. 
It's more than the sum of its influences, most obviously Eleanor Rigby. Incidentally, people who went to the Crumlin Festival, which took place during a brutally wet English summer in 1970, remember that Elton played Lady Samantha there with Nigel and Dee intriguing. Flipside, All Across the Havens, is a favourite of mine. This is the demo of the track, which I've played in part on the podcast before. This track's got some of the best of that completely intuitive Elton Caleb interplay that marked out these early recordings. Elton sounds so great on this song. His voice was just so fluid in 1968, so agile. The chords and the melody, they're simple, but they're still a little bit surprising. There's a great top note to pay off early on in the chorus. And Bernie's lyrics are also very strong. And they're meaningful, but they're not heavy. He's got Elton singing about a man who's left his wife while he goes off to sail the world. He's left her lonely and bearing his crosses. Perhaps this means she's pregnant. The sister of Sunlight offers to carry her burden and he's told that prayer will give him some kind of ongoing link with his wife across the miles. And then the song ends with a magical parting of the seas or of the waterfall, presumably taking the man home, forgiven and released of his chains. This isn't the only bit of Christian writing that Bernie was doing at the time. There's also the straightforward praise song In the Morning, um, although I'm not totally convinced that that's Elton and Bernie. And then there's several songs that make reference to religion in one way or another, including Hymn 2000's Thick Vicar and Skyline Pigeon's Distant Churches. There could also be something of God in the brilliantly economical first line of Gulliver. Gulliver's gone to the final command of his master. The single was received very well. As Elton says, it was a turntable hit. Of course, it wasn't a hit hit, though. We've got reviews for this song in the Captain Fantastic Scraps book. Disc and Music Echo said it had a semi-Elizabethan feel, but lyrically interesting, whatever that means. The enemy gave them, the lyrics are sensible and worthwhile, not a part of the underground type scene. A promising talent and the melody maker were the kindest of the lot saying Elton has a sturdy voice and this is an interesting guitar ridden sound that could well create waves of interest V good and a gold star you don't get much more gently encouraging than a gold star do you 
So the sessions for the album proper began in the studios on the first floor of the DJM building on New Oxford Street. They were recorded onto the four-track Studer J37. It was a weird setup in that studio. The producer and the engineer were only able to observe the live room via CCTV. Apparently the bulk of the work was done very quickly in January with the sessions going on late into the night. The sessions were, by all accounts, great fun. They're looked back on extremely warmly by everyone involved, despite the pressure that Elton and Bernie must have been under. Credit goes to Steve again for carving out a space for Elton, Bernie and Caleb to work in. Afterwards, if they finished too late to get home, they would apparently head to the other end of Oxford Street where they could stay in the Salvation Army HQ, which was run by Steve's father. Here's Caleb from my interview with him where we talked about the recording of the album and of his memories of Steve. Do you have any memories of those sessions? I think it was, you've, you said it was like a week or so in January recording Empty Sky. Oh, the Empty Sky? 69. Yeah, it didn't take long. Went very smooth. It, it was great. It was a lot of fun. Steve sounds yeah. like a nice guy to work with. Oh, Steve was great. Steve was, yeah. Unfortunately, Steve's part mm. on. I wish we had him around, but uh, he was great. Yeah. Yeah, he good sounds friend. like he came good with like a real music, musical integrity. It was about the music yes. and nothing else with him. Absolutely. That was Steve. Yeah, yeah. He was great. These were the halcyon days. Days that they'd come back to just five years later to lionize and mythologize on Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. Here's Elton from the same BBC interview as earlier talking about his memories. Oh, tremendous. I mean, this was at a time when records were real fun. I mean, it was the sort of the height of the flower power thing, the new supergroups, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Empty Sky was the first album we made. It was made at Dick James' studio, which was only like an eight track. And I had a great time making it. Empty Sky, in fact, is still one of my favourite rock and roll tracks. To get Caleb Quay, who was also very bigoted and wanted to play like Jimi Hendrix, to, to try and get him to play like one of the Rolling Stones, we had to sort of coax him with, you know, with Jimi Hendrix records and things like that. As far as a rock and roll track, it still gives me great pleasure. And the electric piano sound, just little silly things that the public would notice that were when you make records, you do. And for a studio that size, it was quite a good bit. Sky was late to the party. It was only written on the 7th of January 1969, and we know now, thanks to John Higgins's marvelous new article on eltonjohn.com about the album, that it was recorded just a week later on the 14th as Take Six. Elton himself described this track in his My Life in 20 Songs article as a great rock and roll track. I love it to death. I remember doing the vocal in the stairwell to get that echo in a very small studio in London. The guitar solo was done in the stairwell as well. It came together so brilliantly and it still sounds so good. It's hard for a piano player to write a rock and roll song. It sounded like a stone song. I thought, I can do this. 
The basic track was recorded with Roger Pope, Killing It on drums, Elton on piano, Tony Murray on bass, and Caleb on congas. Elton's voice is so filthy and edgy, he's basically tunelessly belting out the words, I'm not a rat to be spat on. A fine way to start your first album. The organ, the harmonica, the flute, the double-tracked vocal and the guitars, including the guitar solo, were added later in overdub. This wasn't a uh, back-to-basics Beatles and Stones in 1969-type guitar solo, though. Instead, Caleb had one foot firmly in 1966 as he recorded this one backwards. Here is that solo highlighted in Out of Phase Stereo. listen to a backwards guitar solo without then reversing it to find out what was actually played forwards so We're getting into it. What Caleb's playing sort of makes sense backwards like that, and the runs are quite logical, but the timing is mad. I really don't know how he did it. The out of phase stereo effect also highlights the flute, harmonica, and the conga parts very nicely later on in the song. Here they are. It's a great opening for a debut album. It's a direct, simple lyric from Bernie about being trapped. And yet Elton sounds so loose and relaxed with it at times. They sound like a garage band in places. I love the tone that 
Caleb gets out of his guitar. It's a 64 Fender Strat. I think this is Elton's longest song, apart from the two for oneers, and it's full of shades of colour. It never really outstays its welcome. I do think that Elton sounds a bit daft in the let's get a little bit lower section, but who cares? He's having fun. By the way, that vocal was clearly added afterwards, and the band's volume was dropped manually via the faders rather than being something that happened in the room they had an inspiration for this dropout and restart it was probably the stones track going home from their 1966 album aftermath the stones volume changes are a bit more organic than elton's though And Caleb had fun with the song again in 1975-76 when they played a 10-minute-plus version of it on tour. If we can ever get a decent recording of that, it would be a highlight of CD3. I've programmed in the Seattle Center version because it's the best audience recording we've got. But who knows what's in the live vaults from that era. As well as the stereo mix, there's a mono mix of the song on CD2 which I played an excerpt from in episode 28. There's an early mix on CD3, which doesn't circulate, but it does exist. And finally, there's the superb Roy Everett cover from May 1969. Uh, It was just before Elton's original came out. Um, And I've put that on a CD of contemporary covers of songs from this era, CD6. On to track two, Valhalla. It's got one of those very steeped in mythology Bernie lyrics. This one was certainly written before the 27th of November 68. That's when Elton played five songs solo on John Peel's Night Ride program, namely this, Lady What's Tomorrow, The Scaffold, an early outing for first episode at Hyenton, and something called Digging My Grave, which we know nothing about whatsoever. Sea dogs have all sailed their ships to the docks of dawn While the sirens sit and comb their hair Men of iron, men of steel, only 
only the brave hear the hammers ring in the courts of the queens and the halls of the kings. You can come to Valhalla in your own time. Come to Valhalla, seek and you'll find Valhalla. This is one of my all-time favourite Elton John songs. I can't really explain why. It's such a wonderful showcase for his early voice and for his emerging ability to spin a simple, unexpected melody out of almost nothing. It's just this gentle, folky progression which is made up of lots of short sections that stack up beautifully and intelligently. It gets to the chorus and for me it's a bit basic, it lets the verse down perhaps and repeating it each time doesn't really help. Still, it's a stunning piece of music, it's a glimpse into the folky netherland that Elton could have ventured into if he'd have chosen to. Somehow Elton doesn't sound like he's chewing on these lyrics, they are definitely tough to digest but if you pick them apart a bit you can see that the meaning's pretty plain. It's just a bunch of ideas relating to the afterlife in Norse mythology, all compiled together. The whole thing has got a naivety to it that sums up the whole album. I really love the instrumental setting for this song, the harpsichord, the swirling organ, the pentangle-like drumming, and then Caleb adding in texture throughout on his acoustic, a 1964 Gibson J45 according to the Higgins article, which also tells us that this song was recorded on January the 28th as Take 9. We've got this track just twice on this collection, the stereo mix and the mono mix. The mono mix is very similar to these ears, but it's got a slightly longer fade out with a bit of extra harpsichord. Recorded on the same day as Valhalla was track three, Western Ford Gateway. This is the track in out-of-phase stereo, sounding very weird indeed. There are some stark decisions about the stereo field that were made on Empty Sky, and it makes for some odd outcomes when you do an out-of-phase extraction. 
Apparently Elton and Ray once played this during their European tour in February 1979 out in Germany. I'm sure that's not right. But it's on setlist.fm and I swear I once found a reference to it in a clipping online but perhaps I dreamt it because I've searched and searched and I can't find it again. This is a boozy lyric from Bernie. It's about a night out. It's got an ominous undercurrent of doom and destiny and it's got a northern feel but apart from that it's quite hard to place the lyrics got some very victorian elements the gas lamps the tavern and the cobbled streets but it's possible that bernie would have still recorded these for himself from his childhood quite why he's calling rubbish garbage in that world i've no idea though i don't much like this song i find it a bit grating in its sound it's repetitive as well got another one of those double choruses and the chorus is quite chuggy and basic still i will say that it's a great title from bernie for some reason i've always thought that western ford gateway sounds like somewhere off planet you might remember from episode 28 that this track is quite different and arguably better in the mono mix the higher harmony guitar is mixed um, a bit lower and it makes the song a bit less abrasive side one ends with hymn 2000 she chose the soft center and took it to bed with a an illusion to gain for the news of her brother and the comfort of so intense tonally it's weird it's got that unsettled introduction it's based around a diminished chord and then it switches between a verse that's in a flat major and then a chorus that's in f major and it pivots on a c chord it's a really fruity idea from elton he said that he sees this as a leonard cohen type of thing and it does have some of that in the way he leaves the words hanging suspended for as long as he does caleb said in his interview on eltonjohn.com from last week that the way he's singing the melody and that groove that kind of lopes along that's Joni mitchell we loved Joni mitchell the choice of instruments wedges this song somewhere between the sacred and the secular, with Don Fay's flute being prominent throughout, along with Caleb's wonderful acoustic guitar work. Again, Elton's less up front on his piano is taking the rhythm, along with Tony Murray on bass and Roger on tambourine, like he's trying to turn things away from a Church of England service and into spiritualist territory. Clive Franks is there as well, whistling the song to a close. This is such a human sounding record, it's only right that we should have some whistling on it. The song was recorded on the 12th take on Wednesday the 22nd of January. It's got a longer fade out on the mono mix as I demonstrated in episode 28. 
Lyrically, it's all over the place, owing a big debt to Bob Dylan. It's psychedelic, Joycean, prosaic and sacrilegious all at once. This track is often picked out to exemplify Bernie's early lyrical naivety fairly reasonably, I'd say, but it's full of gold. Like the wonderful line about collecting submarine numbers on the main street of the sea. There's one line that Elton struck out from Bernie's original lyric, which ran, Who wrote the Bible? Was it Judas or Pilate? In fiction or fact, they found one cleans his hands while the other one hangs, and still I continue to stand. Doesn't really clear anything up. Unlike Take Me to the Pilot or Grey Seal, which I've picked apart before, I don't really feel this lyric stands close reading. Time to turn over the record. Here we find a song that features four times in this collection, Lady What's Tomorrow. We've got the familiar stereo mix with the piano introduction. There's a mono mix, um, which I played on episode 28, which starts abruptly with no introduction, and an early mix, which starts with an organ introduction. Here's track 11 on CD4, though. The demo of Lady What's Tomorrow. Look up, little brother. Can you see the clover? No, not over there. A little bit left, yeah. And over there. Now look and see the lilac tree, the lily pond. The skylark song, the open air, but no one cares if branches live and die out there. Remember when you were nine and I was ten, we would run into the wood, we never will again. What's tomorrow, what's tomorrow anyway, if it's not the same as now, it's the same as yesterday, yes lady, what's tomorrow, will it be the same as now, will the farmer push the pen, will the writer pull the plow, One of the most unexpected and welcome things from the John Higgins article was the recording dates. This is the last bit of information of this kind that we've got, unfortunately. There's no details for the rest of the album. But apparently the album version of Lady What's Tomorrow was recorded on November the 19th, 1968, after four takes. That's a week before the solo John Peel session, and that could mean that it was being considered as the single alongside Lady Samantha. Of course, this track famously features the first outing for Nigel Olsen on any official Elton John recording. It seems that Roger Pope wasn't involved until around December for the recording of Lady Samantha onwards, and they were keeping the drummer's stool warm with the likes of Olsen and Tomlinson up until the end of November. Incidentally, Nigel recalls that the song was originally cut as a demo in his recent interview with Rolling Stone, so perhaps the recording that we have on the album is a 
full band demo repurposed, who knows? You might remember from my episode about Bernie's auction that this lyric was originally even more on the nose with the couplet, We would run into the wood now where the council estate is stood. It's been rendered a little less direct in the edit, but not by much. Here we've got a pastoral, ecologically minded Bernie yearning for the simple life, just as he would later on on Honky Cat and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, among other songs. Elton gives it another understated setting with lots of open chords. This could almost have been written by a guitarist. It finds a clever way to modulate upper tone into the chorus and then it climbs back down in an elegant manner, back down into the verse. Underlying it all is one of the finer examples of the interplay between Caleb and Elton that's all over this record. Caleb said this in his interview, As a guitar player, I've always enjoyed playing with a keyboard player because the tonal palette is wider. If it's all guitars, you're all in the same space, so to speak. Whereas with keyboards, there's a lot more option, a lot more colours. I think that was a major part of our musical chemistry. We just work so well together. Elton and I made it sound so full with our interplay. My finger picking along with his arpeggiated piano work. It just worked beautifully. Out of phase stereo gives us Caleb's part basically in isolation. So no piano, just organ. And you can really hear the detail in what he's doing and how pure and accurate his playing is. Unfortunately, the remnants of the vocal crackle slightly in some of these extractions. It's a weird artifact of the recording that I can't do anything about. That is, despite the crackles, there are some passing chords that he's playing there that surprised me heard in isolation like that. Moving on. I viewed in my presence, my hand on my forehead, inciting the liners of mad merchant seamen, inside to the all the spices of China Lucy walked in there Between the damp arrows You shot out my eyes With the width of her fingers Said she guessed the number Bales in the back Lucy was eating So we hauled up our colors The way the mother had told us 
And together we just watch the sea. Wonderful. This is the BBC version of Sales CD3 Track 7, recorded on July the 11th, 1969, for broadcast nine days later on the Simmons on Sunday show, which also gave us the BBC Lady Samantha recording. The two other tracks documented that day were Son of Your Father and Rock and Roll Madonna. Friend of the show, Peter Thomas, who's got these tapes, tells me that these two tracks are just dubs of the Olympic recordings of those songs. Sales is another one of my absolute favourite Elton John recordings. One of those songs I'd choose to play someone if I felt they had a narrow view of Elton's music. It's a storming thing fast and tight with lots of lurching standstills that leave you feeling slightly seasick. As Caleb said to John Higgins, it's a track that I think is ahead of its time. Compositionally, it's Steely Dan before there was a Steely Dan. Listen to the chord changes. It absolutely stands the test of time. All of that guitar work was done live, the solo, everything. I just pulled the solo from out the air. The harmonics at the beginning is my volume pedal, just a swell effect. And the solo in the middle of the song would have been the wah-wah pedal. Elton's happy just to lay down the texture on electric piano, while Caleb gets all of the prime real estate of the song. That's a defining feature of this album. There's no ego here. What will make the song work? That's the question they ask and they let the answer guide them in their choices around the arrangements. The excellent recent Elton Ultimate Music Guide magazine special here in the UK from the makers of Uncut described this track as being indebted to Laura Nyro and her 1968 album Eli and the 13th Confession. I don't exactly hear what they mean with that there's no specific song that i can hear from there in sales but the way she changes feel midsection is certainly similar to what elton and the band do here like lady what's tomorrow this lyrics had a fair amount of work done rendering it more enigmatic than it already was which was quite Someone, possibly Elton, added in the refrain and together we just watched the sales in Bernie's original lyric, the word sales only featured in the title. There's nothing drastically different in the mono mix on CD2, by the way, although Elton's backing vocals are a little quieter. Here's track seven, The Scaffold, sounding familiar at first and then different because I've mixed in some out-of-phase stereo. Orient, where wise I was to please the way I live. Come give the beggar a chance at hand, his life is on his lead. Three score a thousand times once in Amazon.
This is such an understated piece of music. It's so contained and restrained. Once again, Elton and Caleb are twisted as one. They go through a melodic path that's very similar to the ones they follow in Valhalla and in All Across the Havens. Elton has to sing this one deadpan as it's got some of the wilder lyrics from Bernie from this era. He has to at least make it sound as if he knows what he's singing about. And impressively, for me, he pulls it off. Bernie's all over the shop, geographically at least. There are references to the Orient, so that's Asia and the Middle East. There's South America with the Amazon and El Dorado. And Greece with the Minotaur. But they seem to just be here for colour. What we have is a lyric that's very similar at its heart to the likes of Empty Sky, The Cage and Bad Side of the Moon. It's another one of Bernie's incarceration songs where escape is impossible. In this one, the protagonist is being encouraged by the ruler, sarcastically, it seems, to try to escape and to run hard into the scaffold high. The scaffold seems to belong to a gallows and there's a buckshy hangman waiting there with his anachronistic nylon knots and the uh, runner will just become more plant life a spectacle for people including his own widow to observe through their black lace curtains and plate glass windows as i said in episode 12 this is 1968-69 bernie's number one topic it's very difficult not to read into it a narrative of a young writer feeling trapped by his and Elton's lack of success and starting to feel as though it was always going to be thus. Every now and again, though, there's light in the darkness, and the following song is a prime example of this. Turn me loose from your hands let me fly to distant lands over green fields trees and mountains flowers and forest fountains home along the lanes of the skyway Skyline Pigeon features a rather excessive six times on this collection. There's the stereo mix, the mono mix, live in 1971 in Japan, uh, 1974 from the Royal Festival Hall, and the two cover versions that start the story way back in the summer of 1968 by Roger Cook and Guy Darrell, respectively. Since the stereo mix has got such drastic panning, with the vocal in one channel and the harpsichord in the other, it's possible to highlight one after the other, as I've done here. It was a bold step to arrange a song with nothing but harpsichord and organ and vocal, and in the end, they clearly felt they'd missed a trick because they returned to it during the recording of Don't Shoot Me, giving it, for me, an unadventurous arrangement, certainly in Buckmaster terms. Just let me wake up in the morning To the smell of newborn hay To laugh and cry To live and die In the brightness of my day I wanna 
sure that I like either arrangement all that much. The Baroque setting is just too reverent for my liking. Then again, it is essentially a hymn with that stairwell reverb again, which is designed to, to make it sound as though the song was recorded in a church. There are plenty of nods to church music in Elton's writing here. There's a passing chord that adds some very restrained drama to the chorus. That's a D7 chord which comes just after the fly away note at the very top of the song. There's also lots of sustained fourths that eventually resolve typical in hymns. And then there's that anchoring line at the end of the verses, like where he sings home along the lanes of the skyway, which almost feels as though it's designed to get the congregation back in sync with one another. I've spoken about Bernie's lyric at length in episode 12. There's a real glint of freedom here. He's not just drifting in endless space anymore, but when he's flying here, the image we get is of someone barreling on towards his dreams. There's a sense of purpose and destiny which isn't often present in Bernie's writing during this phase. It's right then that Elton gives it a positive treatment, making something resounding, warm and hopeful out of it. It's worth noting just how elastic Elton is with his phrasing here. The first verse has got lots of long-held syllables. The first two lines, turn me loose from your hands, let me fly to distant lands, that's a total of 13 syllables. The equivalent in the final verse, which is just let me wake up in the morning to the smell of new mown hay, to laugh and cry, to live and die in the brightness of my day, is 31 syllables. But somehow, the first verse doesn't sound too dragged out, and the final verse doesn't seem rushed. It's a true feat on Elton's part. He just makes it sound so easy. This is the song that marked out the actual start of their writing career, they would say, and it's been an evergreen for them, turned to all kinds of uses. Ryan White's funeral, Lady Diana's funeral, and undoubtedly thousands of other funerals the world over. It was a hit in Brazil and many other countries around the world. And most recently, it was to be found at the end of the film, the favourite, the harpsichord version for once. The final song proper is the beautiful Gulliver. Here I've done an out of phase stereo extraction again. Um, Caleb's playing is so wonderful on the acoustic. It just had to be highlighted. The song starts out, of course, with Caleb's disarming four-note introduction with that heavy stereo echo. I've left a bit of the full track in after that so that you can get your bearings.
This is a great tune, it's wild that no one ever covered it. As we were lucky enough to hear in the last episode, the chorus melody seems to have grown out of the chorus melody from slow fade to blue. Out of everything on the album, this is the most original sounding for me. It's proper electric folk, it's cool in every dimension. The lyrics are great, they're touching but they're not at all saccharine. There are lots of strong original images like the beautiful Cyclamen holds him. Bernie achieves a great balance between the banal with the men coming from the town and the inscrutably odd like bypassing the doors of his life. Elton responds to the lyrics directly as Bernie gives him the seasons changing all the light from the grey to the dim. Elton responds by holding the music in darkness for a couple of bars. If there'd been a single edit of this going around instead of It's Me That You Need, which was the non-album single that was released alongside the album, perhaps they could have got themselves some more radio play. Three minutes long, simple, catchy, emotionally affecting. It's got an ending borrowed from the link section of A Day in the Life. What's not to like? Maybe it's not for breakfast shows, but still. And this is how it would have ended. That's how the album should have ended. The Heytude thing is fun, but it's got no place tacked onto the end of Gulliver like that. I had some fun with it, though. I was playing around with it. Once again, it's heavily panned. It's alternating from side to side, which is a bit annoying. Um, but with a bit of editing, though, I was able to put together a mix that highlights Caleb and particularly Elton and gets rid of most of the sax. Nothing against Don Fate, but it's quite a nice listen like this. <laughs>
the idea of throwing the music from one ear to the other carried on with the reprise. Even more so than the jazz freakout, this dated the album. It's like a very homemade attempt at doing something epic, like at the very end of A Day in the Life, something definitive to end off the album. But in the end, it just dilutes the potential power of the ending that they already had in the can with Gulliver. I've lined up the mono and stereo reprises, by the way, and I can confirm that the edit points are exactly the same for each, but that the mono starts up about three-tenths of a second later. Yes, really, I checked. This suggests to me that the stereo mix was actually the first one that they did, as they will have had to have started with the reprise edit in stereo and then fold it down after that. So that's the album. Here are some contemporaneous reviews. The London Evening Standard gave it the most coverage. This record by Elton John, nicely recorded though it may be, is, to my mind, practically unrelated to anything I experience. While the melodies are sweet, it is unadventurous. The lyrics seem to be a bit self-consciously cultured and poetic in a highly fanciful style. The last track is the best one, called Gulliver. It is about the death of a dog, but it is eventually spoiled by a musical montage of no great significance. To be fair, though, I think we do well to watch out for Elton John. He has a talent. When he gets less fanciful and less pretentious, he will, I'm sure, have a more worthwhile contribution to make. I'm not sure whose review that is. It's not credited in the scraps book but they've got it spot on haven't they it's like they've come back from the future to write it the disc and music echoes review is also equivocal but broadly positive it says can't help feeling that his lyrics could still do with a little more maturity a little less youthful pretension but that's just carping because the music is so nice and pretty that you can't really put it down well worth a good listen to the melody maker gave elton people are predicting great things of elton a talented youth who plays piano organ electric piano and harpsichord it's a fine debut that might be an excerpt i'm not sure there's one more review in the scraps book this one's unattributed it just says this is a sort of folk rock album when I first saw it, before I heard it, I couldn't believe that the record could be as bad as the cover design, and I was right. The record is excellent. All of the numbers are original and make very pleasant listening. If you have an hour to spare, give the album a spin and turn on. The Ultimate Music Guide to Elton, the recent magazine which I mentioned earlier, calls El Empty Sky a half-digested compendium of all that Elton had learned and loved, a faltering first step towards something of his own, with visible stitches holding it all together. I'd say that's a bit unfair. Yes, it's a, it's a bit of a grab bag of styles. It's got elements of garage rock, psychedelia, electric folk, rock music, Americana, church music, and even jazz. But... Elton and his team add two very important things to the mix. They've got their own virtuosity, particularly Caleb's on this album. 
along with Elton's ability to twist some sort of memorably off-kilter tune out of nowhere. The album didn't really belong anywhere. It was too late for the psychedelic heyday of the Summer of Love. It's not American. It's not Americana. It's not British 1968-69 back-to-basics rock music. It's not a late 60s British folk album. It's not 1970s singer-songwriter genre, which Elton would, of course, end up steering in his own mad direction. It just sits there as its own thing. It's a perfect artefact of its time. It's the story of a group of music fans who were trying to do something real and new. It sounds like nothing else Elton ever did. An ego-free zone. Music for music's sake. Lyrically, the criticisms are harder to swerve. There are some real missteps here, like Valhalla and Hymn 2000, but there are some very smart sets of lyrics too, like Sales and Gulliver. Right. So as I'm sure that you can tell if you're looking at the enormous list of tracks on the 6CD collection that doesn't exist... I've got a lot of ground to cover still. I'm going to split off discussion of CD4 and CD5 into at least one other episode. Just as this would be a great way to present this material for release, it's also a good format to introduce and to discuss it in this podcast. CD6, if you look, it's mostly uh, covers the same territory as episode 19, which was about early covers. So I'll refer you there for that one, although that's a topic I'm bound to return to at some point because that episode was by no means definitive. One thing I do need to cover is the single that came out the week before the album on May the 28th. It's Me That You Need, backed with Just Like Strange Rain. We know from Elton's diary in the Scraps book that the A-side was recorded in an evening session at Olympic Studios on Thursday the 10th of April. You'll notice that these two sides aren't on CD1. That's because there's never been a stereo mix of them. They've only ever been released in mono. That's on the Lady Samantha LP, on Rare Masters, and on the 1995 Empty Sky. They must have actually had the original multitracks for Lady Samantha, or maybe that was damaged, and for All Across the Havens... In 1992, when they were putting the Rare Masters together, but they wouldn't have had anything like that for It's Me That You Need and Just Like Strange Rain. And I've also heard that the original multitracks for the Empty Sky album itself have been lost. So don't expect a Giles Martin-style remix for this album anytime soon. in the mirror Are you afraid you might see me looking at you I 
Cy Payne, who arranged this song, had worked with another Ray Williams act, The Idol Race, uh, with a certain Jeff Lynne among their ranks. He also worked often with Tony Hiller, part of the Denmark Street Old Guard. He only died last year. Um, He arranged United We Stand for Tony, for example. This is such a quaint piece of music. It's a plaintive melody from Elton. The arrangement builds step by step and it lifts the song up for the chorus, at which point the violins tumble down like torrential rain. It's a clever arrangement, but it's overblown and unsubtle, a bit like the song itself. It's not dreadful. There's an innocence and an urgency to the track and Elton delivers a powerful vocal. Clearly they were trying to show a different side of Elton to the one that was represented on the album and I don't think this was the way to do it. It's confusing in and of itself, it's very middle of the road, but it's got Caleb sprawled all over that road. It must have confused whatever fans Elton had at the time. It's a throwback to the likes of I've been loving you and I can't go on living without you. It's a chorus composed of the title and very little else. I even wonder whether or not this is actually a Bernie lyric. It sounds like one of Elton's to me. The song was apparently reviewed in Record Mirror and probably elsewhere, but I don't have access to any of those, unfortunately. I'd love to read them, though. The B-side, for me, is much better. It actually sounds like it could have come from the album. So here it is. This is the true electro-folk of Just Like Strange Rain. start off with that wired shock of Caleb's bent guitar string and then we drop straight into a bright jaunty little folk song with Elton sounding a little bit like an alien version of Donovan all untethered and willowy it's one of Bernie's most lysergic lyrics a description of someone turning from their book to look out of the window at the rain that's the moment that it captures and in a Joycean manner It follows the extremely non-linear thought process of the protagonist as the light hits his eyes. Lyrically, it's a step back from some of the better stuff on Empty Sky, but it holds together all the same. Musically, it's slight, but it's delightful, with Elton deftly spinning up his register for the line settled on the window pane, and then modulating up a semitone for a crisp, 
simple little chorus, which is composed almost entirely of Bernie's wonderful title. So that's it. As far as music that was released officially by Elton in 1969, at least. So where does this all leave Elton as he approaches the summer of that year? You get the feeling from his very short diary entries that he was pretty happy. The pin affair, going on holiday with Bernie and his family in Ilfracum, and then accompanying Steve and others over to the Isle of Wight to see Bob Dylan play. Into the wind, into the far distance as it turned out, but still, it sounds like some fun was being had. The music didn't really take off though. The album apparently sold around 4,000 copies and there hadn't been a lot of press. The machine had basically seized up. Here's Elton talking to Brian Matthew of the BBC in July 1969 about his lack of live experiences. And this guy beside me now, we feel convinced is going to be a big force on the scene before long. His name, Elton John. Good to have you here. It's a pretty rare thing, isn't it, for a group to have an album doing well, by all accounts, yet for that group to have made no personal appearances at all. How did it happen in your case, Elton? Well, we want to make personal appearances, but there's things to be sorted out at the moment. And also, I've only sort of had six hours rehearsal with the band. The band at the moment are a band in their own right, you know, they made a record on their own. Yeah. But we want to team up together, because I've known the boys for so long, and they've played on the record as well. All of them? Uh, all except the bass player, which unfortunately mm. he didn't play in it. I wish he had it. Things turned sour for Elton in late September 1969. That's when Elton records in his diary that Hookfoot or Caleb's band, as he puts it, had been signed. According to the letter that Elton wrote to Danny Hutton a little later that year, they'd been signed to Chess Records. In the end, this all fell through for them. The subsidiary that they were recording for evaporated and the recordings would end up being shelved for 40-odd years until they got a limited release in Japan as a piece of pie. Still... This is likely to have brought to an end the process of rehearsals and recording at Olympic Studios with Steve Brown at the helm, which I talk about incessantly on this podcast, most recently in the last episode, episode 30. And that ending was actually the birth of the second album as we know it. And of course, that's a story for another day, as I always say. Um, Where does this leave my six CD collection that doesn't exist? As I said at the beginning, there's a lot more ground for me to cover here, particularly on the demo CD, CD4, and the session CD, which we haven't even touched, that's CD5. That will be coming up in the next few weeks. Before I sign off, I'd like to say thank you to some of the listeners who've been in touch with the show. First off, Thanks to the iTunes reviewers. There's loads of you in the US. Elton, one exclamation mark. And Amethyst Hayes are a couple of recent ones. There's Martine in Australia. Calligator79 in New Zealand. And uh, user Carla Etude in Norway. Please, if you like the show... Write a review on there on whatever podcast provider you use. It helps other people to find the show. You can also email the podcast if you've got a suggestion or a correction or whatever for me. Thanks to John Schram, John Keane, Gary Knox and Don Grimm, who've been corresponding with me recently. Thanks to all of you for keeping in touch and letting me know what you like hearing on the podcast. Let's go out with that almost 
contemporary version of Skyline Pigeon from Japan in October 1971. Turn me loose from your hand. Let me fly to distant lands over green fields, trees, and mountains, flowers, and forest fountains. Home along the lane. Of the skyway for this dark and lonely room projects a shadow cast in gloom, and my eyes are mirrors of the world outside, thinking of the ways that the wind can turn the tide. And these shadows turn from purple into green For just this skyline pigeon dreaming out the open Waiting for the day He can spread his wings and fly away again Fly away Skyline pigeon fly Towards the dreams you left so very far behind Let me wake up in the morning To the smell of new mown hay To laugh and cry, to live and die In the brightness of my day I wanna hear the pealing bells Of distant churches sing But most of all, please free me from This aching metal ring And open out this cage towards the sun For just this skyline pigeon Dreaming out the open Waiting for the day He can spread his wings And fly away again Fly away Skyline pigeon fly Towards the dreams you left so very far So very far behind. <laughs> Thank you very much.